Hello and welcome to Order Order, Mail Plus Radio's politics podcast, with me, Simon Walters, Assistant Editor of the Daily Mail. And me, Amanda Platell, Daily Mail columnist. Coming up, Labour grandee Lord Faulkner says Jeremy Corbyn is a problem on the doorstep and should resign quickly if Labour lose. If you're against Labour, you will be against Jeremy Corbyn, but that comes up a lot on the doorstep. If we do not win the election, then I think we, we need to choose an alternative leader as quickly as we reasonably can. Former Liberal Democrat MP Lembit Opik says young Joe Swinson is a whinger, not a winner, and the Lib Dems should never have got rid of old Vince. Vince Cable, he's getting on a bit, but he had a lot of credibility, and he could have certainly hung on for another year or two. I think we can safely assume that Joe Swinson will not be the next Prime Minister. I think that she tries to sort of replace her lack of gravitas with, with almost a whingy attitude. We talked to Tory MP Tom Tugendhat about Trump's visit to the UK. What does it mean for the election? There is no way that the British people are going to allow the NHS to be sold. You and I both know that. It's completely clear. And so it's absolutely not for sale and never will be. And the British people would never vote for anybody who would sell it. And don't forget, you can email us with your questions during the week at orderorder at dailymail.co.uk. We'll attempt to answer as many as we can during the show. As we enter the last week of the election campaign, we discuss what Boris has to do to maintain his lead and can Jeremy Corbyn repeat his sprint to the finishing line in 2017, which brought him within a whisker of beating Theresa May. Well, in many ways, uh, much of this week has been taken over by the ghastly terrorist attack um, on London Bridge. And, of course, inevitably it soon became political Boris Johnson was accused of using it to score political points, Amanda. Was he right or wrong to do that? I think he could he had no alternative really. I mean it was a you know, it was a huge incident, it was a tragedy, it brought the nation to a standstill once again over terrorism. You know, he had to respond because he's the Prime Minister. But more importantly, just on a, a cynical note, you know, this is raw meat to, to the heartland conservatives. You know, that he briefed out that they were going to, um, that he wanted to lock them up and throw away the key. Mm, that's pretty aggressive briefing. He didn't actually say it, though, but it was briefed out. Um, and But you see that, you can see why he's doing that, because that's trying to re- reinforce his law and order message. But uh, it was rather uncomfortable reading when um, the, the the young man whose father wrote yeah. that piece in the Guardian. It was um, Dave Merritt, Jack's dad, saying he's saying his son would never want politicians See, to use it to score political points. Exactly. Mm. But do you think, in some ways, this relates back to the last election campaign because there was a terrorist incident then, and then Theresa May didn't make didn't say anything about it. What happened? The Labour Party went on the attack and said it was because Theresa May had cut the police. So maybe it's just that the Boris camp, whatever Theresa Theresa did, Boris is going to do the opposite. I think that would be very, very good advice, don't you? Possibly. Um, Other issue really big this week, um, NHS, and of course um, the Labour Party tried to to make capital out of this, tried to say Boris is going to sell the NHS to Trump, and what happened, Trump turns up for a NATO summit, and the whole thing is taken over by the NHS. And uh, Trump came up with that quote, didn't he? Oh, we wouldn't want the NHS even if you offered it to us on a silver platter. Did I detect the hand of Downing Street in that soundbite there? It certainly sounded, didn't it? It was um, it was just too pre-prepared. Um, it was too eloquent. Uh, too eloquent? Tr- too eloquent for Trump. And, and it was supposed to really nail what the Tories claim is this Labour lie that they'd sell off the NHS because mm. the Labour started to do better with the NHS. There was, at the beginning of the election, a point where Boris was doing better. 
and more trusted with it. But that's slipping away. Mm. And Boris says he's got to get the narrative back onto Brexit. You know, when he goes, the, the, the heartland seats that he needs to win. Mm. Um, and the main reason that they're going to be voting is because they believe he's going to deliver Brexit. I, I think just going back to this, this not, we wouldn't want the NHS on a silver platter. I'm reminded of 2016, just before the referendum, when Barack Obama came over. And he came out with this quote saying that, um, oh, um, if we went ahead with Brexit, then the UK would be at the back of the queue for trade talks. Maybe some point down the line, there might be a a UK-US trade agreement, but it's not going to happen anytime soon because our focus is in negotiating with a big bloc, the European Union, to get a trade agreement done. And UK is going to be... In the back of the queue. People smelled a rat there, thought, hold on, the Americans talk about the line, not the queue. And lo and behold, a year or two later, we found out it was scripted by Downing Street. Exactly. I wonder whether the same is going to happen here. I think the other thing that, that was more damaging um, with the Obama thing was it felt as though he was trying to influence a referendum before it happened. Mm. The Brexit vote uh, went up after Obama's intervention. So it's quite yeah. different in its subtlety. Now we've got um, Trump trying to give um, Boris Johnson and the people an assurance that he doesn't want our mm. tired old mucked up. And that was the kind of tone. You're a tired old crumbling NHS. Who'd want it? Now, what have, we've got one week left in the campaign. Um, the the latest polls show the Conservatives are ahead by about nine points, yeah. which would which suggests the majority of 30-ish, 40 but Corbyn caught up in the last week last time. What have, what have both parties got to do in the last week, Amanda? What, what's the priority for Boris? Boris's campaign has been pretty slick. I mean, they've not done what Theresa May, which all of her events were controlled and away from ordinary people. You've got him playing to Boris's um, strengths. He's out there meeting folks, having selfies taken. He's enthusiastic about everything. He is, you know, it, it's it's sort of gold Boris that but we've seen. And the thing, I think, with the comparison with, with Jeremy Corbyn is that Jeremy Corbyn's playing to his strengths as well, doing the rallies and all the rest of it. But he looks tired. Boris seems tireless he seems he's just got so much energy at the moment and every time you look at Corbyn he just looks like he wants to go and sit in the allotment mm. there, there was another amusing poll out this morning by uh, a serious research company which, which had some voters in and, and asked them to come up with animals that the leaders represented and um, Boris came up as a snake or a pig a snake he does look a bit like a pig actually <laughs> but, the, but the good news for him was it actually was probably better than Cor- corbyn came up as a, a weasel and one of the respondents said that corbyn looked like a panda falling out of a tree not knowing what's going on i think i'd rather be the pig <laughs> knowing what's going on than the panda that doesn't i'd rather be a panda because they're cuter Yes, maybe. And I think really it's avoiding gaffes, isn't it? We yes. all remember what happened to Gordon Brown when poor old Gordon Brown was caught calling uh, a, a, a woman Labour voter a bigot. And um, they'll they'll both be trying to avoid banana skins. They certainly are. And Boris is on a very, very tight leash. Lord Falconer, Lord Chancellor in Tony Blair's government, says the Union Chief Redlen McCluskey is wrong to say that Jeremy Corbyn should hang on as leader if Labour are beaten. He also says the party's next leader does not have to be female, even though Labour's never had a woman leader. I asked him how the campaign's going. It's obvious that on the doorstep in the Midlands and the North, there is real concern both about uh, our Brexit policy and 
uh, Jeremy Corbyn. But this is a campaign. This is an election about leaders, I suspect. And so if you're against Labour, you will be against Jeremy Corbyn. But that comes up a lot on the doorstep. And, and can you articulate what are those concerns specifically? The concerns about Jeremy Corbyn are, I think, he's too metropolitan. Uh, he's uh, his Brexit policy is wrong. There are issues about competence. Do you fear that they now have little or no chance of, of, of winning a majority? Well, that's what all the pollsters are saying. I don't know what the result is going to be. I'm hopeful and things could change between now and Thursday. But a majority is difficult at the best of times. And in these divided times where Brexit is such an issue and such an issue for so many voters who would traditionally have voted Labour, we've got quite a struggle. I'm very worried that the heartland Labour voter, the working class who had always voted Labour in the past, now may not see Labour as the absolute place that they will go to. And the reason for that is Brexit. And, and do you think that the, the campaign has been focused too much around Jeremy Corbyn? Would you have liked to have seen other prominent front benches take, part, take, take a bigger part? I think Labour is a broad church. The broader the church of people presenting Labour policies, the more that is emphasised. Well, who, who, who do you mean? Who are the kind of people you think would help get the Labour vote up? Well, I, I mean, I, I think we've got a pretty strong team. I think it, there's, there's, a, there's a quite high degree of competence. I mean, we haven't seen very much of Emily Thornberry. We haven't seen very much of Keir Starmer. Whether that's because of differences on Europe policy, I don't know. But we haven't seen much of them. They are impressive performers. It would have been good to see them. Now, the, 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 the Len McCluskey has talked of uh, what might happen if the Labour Party does lose and, and indicated he thinks that Jeremy Corbyn should stay on for a while. What's the best thing for Labour to do if you do lose? Well, may I be clear, I hope that we win. And the reason I hope we will win, because if Labour wins, even though I'm against a second referendum, I'm sure Labour would produce a much closer relationship with Europe outside the European Union with the Conservatives. I think that's important. I also think it will make a difference for so many communities economically if Labour wins. And I also think critically... If the Tories win with Boris Johnson, the chances of Scotland in the long term remaining in the union are weak. Whereas if Jeremy wins, I think that gives a, a much greater chance of the union holding together. Mm. Labour in the short and the long term is the only way, I think, to deliver an agenda that will keep the country together and, and genuinely help the many, not the few. And I say that to make it clear I'm long term Labour. I have no interest in any alternative to Labour. If we win, well and good. If we form a government, well and good. If we don't, then remember this election is a staging post in the Brexit process and a change in the economic direction of the country. We can't afford as a party, if we do lose, to be staring at our navel. We have to be on the pitch with an alternative prime minister. So obviously one's got to wait and see what happens. But if we do not win the election, then I think we, we need to choose an alternative leader as quickly as we reasonably can. It may take a few months to set the whole thing up for an election. But I do think that we cannot afford to be looking in on ourselves because so much is happening to the country. So many decisions will be made that will affect the country 
in the immediate aftermath of this election. This election is not one where everybody can sit back and decide what's going to happen over the next decade. This is an election where straight away we're going to be back in Parliament making decisions about the future. Do you, do you think some of those around the, the Labour leadership um, would like to delay the leadership contest for a while so that some of their preferred candidates, who, who some of whom were quite inexperienced, like Rebecca Long-Bailey, or Pidcock and Angela Rayner, so that they can kind of be prepared for a challenge? Do you think that's, that is going on? I don't know. I mean, I note that Lemma McCluskey said yesterday that there should be a period of reflection before we decide what to do i just don't think one can do that what i I don't know what we would achieve in relation to that we're going to have to choose a leader who is ready and the difference between now or beginning of january and say september is not going to be sufficiently significant in terms of development to make a different choice i don't think Mm. i mean there is there's quite a strong many people in the labor party say that the Labour Party's never had a woman leader and that this time it has to be a woman leader. Do, do you do you think that is essential or, or, or are there other factors at play? We, we have to have a woman in the leadership team, by which I mean leader or deputy leader. We can't have two men. I think we could have two women, but I don't think we could have two men. Whether that means if the leader is a man, you then have to have a, a woman deputy, but it has to be one or the other. It seems to me that means it's possible for a man to become the leader if the party thinks that that man is the best person for the job. But subject to that caveat about the leadership team. And and who are the men who you think might challenge for it? Keir Starmer, John McDonnell even? Yes, I think uh, Keir Starmer, John McDonnell, they would both, I mean, they're both incredibly serious impressive politicians let the let the let the party decide I don't, but it's it's not only i mean emily thornbury would be a serious candidate i think angie rayner rebecca long bailey they'd all be serious candidates it's interesting isn't it simon it does seem as though the plans have already well they have to because there's every chance at the moment with the polls as charlie said that their labor's going to lose but you couldn't with any credibility wait the year that it would take for the Labour Party conferences when they traditionally vote in, you know, choose their next leader. They're going to have to do it quickly. But, I mean, I'm just thinking up against Boris. I think Keir Starmer's the greatest threat um, because John McDonald, even though I think he's very impressive, and Emily, they both feel very kind of old Corbynista people. Mm, I, I think Whereas wh- Keir's got a freshness about him, a sophistication. He's very clever. And I think he'd, he'd intellectually give Boris a run for his money. I, I think what what's really fascinating is you're, you're starting to see the, 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 the sort of the battle lines for the next Labour leadership contest. And I think the point that um, Lord Faulkner was trying to make is that there, there is a view amongst some that the Corbynistas think that their candidates, Rebecca Long-Bailey, Lord Pidcock, Andrew, that they're not that experienced, the ones on the hard left. Well, they're not. And, and, that, and that they want to keep Corbyn there so they can kind of groom politically those into a position where they could win the leadership in a year. And I think others who are the sort of the softer left, like Lord Faulkner, what one might have called moderates in the old days, they think their best chance of getting a they need a good they need a good leader straight away but they think the best prepared candidates are kind of on their side of the party the kiss yeah, the thornberries and i think that the other problem is you would have rebecca long bailey she's going to make a great politician one day but she's quite inexperienced but she's still fairly raw uh, and laura pidcock again they're not ready to be set up against boris johnson 
So, you know, they, they really, the Corbynistas do want to play it long, don't they? Mm. And, mm. And, um, and the last thing they want is someone who's more a centralist, who's more like, a bit more like Blair's um, Labour Party. They're, they're going to do everything to try and keep those people out. Because it's, it's worth remembering that, that when, when the Labour Party lost badly before under a hard left leader, under Michael Foote in 1983, it wasn't until 1997 that they got back into office and one wonders whether they're... It could take the same amount of time for the Labour Party. We'll see. The other party leader struggling to make an impact is the Lib Dems' Joe Swinson. Former Lib Dem MP Lembit Opik. Remember him? The MP who went out with one, or was it both? The Cheeky Girls pop group. Cheeky Lembit says Swinson is the reason her party is tanking in the polls. There were two opportunities for the Lib Dems. Have a strong leader and have a strong message. And they started well at the beginning of, year, of the year with both of those. Uh, they were calling for a second referendum. Now, you can argue that, that in itself isn't very democratic, but at least it's a credible position. And they've abandoned that. Uh, they've also abandoned a leader who was doing pretty well. You mean so Vince Cable? Caused, yeah, Vince Cable. He's getting on a bit, but he had a lot of credibility. And he could have certainly hung on for another year or two. And we pretty much knew earlier on this year that there was going to be another election. So instead of Vince Cable staying around, he's cleared off. And we've ended up in a situation where Joe Swinton, who's a perfectly nice human being, has taken over but without the experience to do the job. But on the face of it, you, you'd think she, she's young, she's bright, she's breezy, got new ideas. You, you think she'd be benefiting from a kind of a, the, the usual honeymoon that new leaders get. Young, bright and breezy, they're not really qualifications to lead a party. If you get into politics too young, you never develop the gravitas. Maybe Charles Kennedy was an exception, but Joe Swinson went in there and... I don't think you, you develop emotionally once you become an MP. I certainly feel that I, I sort of stalled while I was an MP in that sense. So you don't develop emotional gravitas when you're the leader. And, and I think that that's one of her problems. But there was, problem, there, 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 was, there was an opinion poll the other day which, which said that the, the more people see of Joe Swinson, the less they like her. What, what is it about her? So she started with goodwill. But the problem is she just doesn't look good compared to the others. The others do have gravitas. Whether you like Jeremy Corbyn or not, no one ever says he's too inexperienced to be the Prime Minister. Same goes uh, to a large extent. But one, one, one or two commentators but, suggested there's something grating or nannyish about her. Do you find that? She is hectoring. I think that she tries to sort of replace her lack of gravitas with, with almost a whingy attitude. And just getting elected to be leader doesn't automatically give you uh, the gold ticket to be a great leader. Um, and that's the difficulty she's got. She just won't be able to, to get into that in time. And she's only got a matter of days to achieve it. One, one or two people have said that the, the Lib Dem star of this campaign has actually been Layla Moran. Do, do you think she would have done better than Joe Swinson? Yes, I think so. We're talking in the past tense, but I think we can safely assume that Joe Swinson will not be the next Prime Minister, nor would Leila Moran. But what she does have is a degree of radicality, which has been sorely missing at the top of the Lib Dems for years. And also she's got that slightly maverick spark. I think that's held her back. I think she's scared of it. But actually, she only needs to look at Boris Johnson. He's got the same maverick quality. He hasn't got skeletons in the closet. He's got skeletons everywhere, but people know they're there. But With wasn't Leila the, the, Moran, the, the, you get 
There, 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 there was a story about Layla Brown that came out that that that, that she 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 confirmed it herself that she she'd been arrested for a, a spat with her boyfriend at a Lib Dem conference a while ago. Do, do you and that came out earlier this year? Do you suspect maybe there was some kind of dirty tricks to keep her out of the leadership contest this year? I think she is such a good person that dirty tricks would work against her. Uh, she would actually be affected by that. Whether it's dirty tricks or not. I'm not sure, but I know that I experienced that. Under the Clegg regime, I certainly experienced a lot of negativity. The Lib Dems pretend to be whiter than white. They're obviously not. Uh, Leila Moran may have been, in some ways, morally pressured into not standing. And that's, that's a mistake, because I think she'd be doing a lot better. And if um, people are in the Labour Party already starting to talk about whether Corbyn will stand down if the Labour Party loses, do you think Swinson will stand down if, or should stand down if the Lib Dem loses? And who would you like to see replace her? It, it depends how badly the Lib Dems do. If the Lib Dems gain seats, there's no prospect of her standing down. And in reality, they start with about 11, all the entryists. You can't really count them. Uh, so let's say she gets 15 seats, pretty unimpressive, quite likely. She'll stick in there. Uh, she's been there long enough. If they get five, which isn't likely, then she'd have to leave. So my prediction is she'd stay. If she didn't stay, then you've already mentioned the most uh, viable current uh, member of Parliament, it would be Leila Moran. You couldn't get any of the, the new arrivals from the other parties. That just doesn't work. So unless it's Leila Moran, uh, I think they're stuck with uh, Joe Swinson for a while. But still, we've got the fundamental problem. Even if you fix the leadership, you've got to fix the agenda. It's a ridiculous mistake to walk away from promising a second referendum and then saying, if we form the government, we're going to ignore democracy and scrap Brexit. That would be like me going back to my seat and saying, well, initially... A second referendum, you were all too stupid to know that I would have been the better MP when I lost my seat. I'm forgetting about that and saying, actually, we don't need a second election. I'm just going to carry on being the member of parliament. And people can see through that. Even Remainers can see through that. So they've got a problem with leadership. They've got a problem with narrative. And that double whammy is holding them back big time. I couldn't agree more with him, Simon. Um, I think Lembert's really put his finger on it. There's, um, she's inexperienced. I mean, to be described as uh, describing your, um, the leader of your party as a perfectly nice human being and sort of damning with faint praise, isn't it? And there is something shrill about um, Joe Swinson and there's something um, simplistic about the policy. I, I, I wouldn't be writing off Chuka um, um, as being a potential leader. Well, he's got to win his seat, and I'm, I think he could struggle to win his seat. But it's been one of the it's been one of the, the things I didn't expect in this election. I kind of thought the Lib Dems, they're the orbit Remain party, they'd clean up. They haven't. It no. just shows that the, the, the electorate are, are a, capable sometimes of making their own decision, ignoring the pundits. And um, they've rejected that policy. And I think rather painfully, they've rejected Joe Swenson. I'm not sure if there's a way back for her. And, you know, she was quite happy to write off all of the um, Lib Dem supporters for potential voters who actually wanted to leave. In one foul swoop, she gave them no comfort, no place in her party. And, th- and that, was, that was, again, her, um, her inexperience, her political naivety. Mm. What, one bit Plus good... those terrible earrings. God, they drive me nuts. One bit of good news. While in, in that poll about leaders and animals, while Boris was a pig and Corbyn was a weasel, Joe Swinson was a kitten. Oh, <laughs> More like a puppy dog. So, Amanda, election campaigns are often littered with fashion errors. What can we learn from what people are wearing this time round? 
Well, it's a little bit more boring this time because we haven't got Theresa May's shoes and Boris is just one of those men. I'm sure that his suits are very expensive. But, Simon, why do they always look as though he's just picked them up off the floor? I mean, he always looks crumpled. He always looks disheveled. The sleeves always seem to be a little bit too long. Um, and But it, it doesn't matter. That kind of, it plays to his strength of being this kind of, not bumbling, bumbling's the wrong word, uh, but this person who doesn't care about Deshabille, things. Deshabillé, I think, is the word <laughs> you're looking for, Amanda. And um, and Corbyn, I mean, that jacket was really funny, wasn't it? Yeah, what was that jacket? Well, I thought that was rather cool, actually. But it's a, I don't know. But it was a jacket, it was, a, it was like a designer jacket, which looked like black jacket, but it had some very natty uh, red, and it had their slogan for the many, not the few, yeah. woven into the jacket. I thought it was rather cool. I mean, he's a slim guy, Corbyn. Instead of wearing shell suits, he should... Um, yeah, but it should... looked a bit student politics, didn't you think? A bit like, you know, having a, a slogan T-shirt on. Mm. Um, and, well, and I just wish he'd stop wearing those polyester shirts. They just look ghastly. But I, I kind of feel sorry for Boris, because I, I was reading up on his fashion eras of past campaigns, and he's spoken very, very... Very, very movingly about being told off for what he wore. In the 2001 campaign, he got in. He, he said it was terrible for Tory candidates like him, and he said these days the word had gone out from no less an authority than Amanda Patel, <laughs> our chief spin doctor, that the pinstripe was dead. She was fed up. We were told of seeing a parade of Tories stretching out, geeved and hawked to the gills like some musical about merchant bankers. I mean, Amanda, I, 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 I've finally got your impact on politics. Lord alive, I did ban them uh, because they just played into the, the narrative that these are all posh boys and, and, and it wasn't just the pinstripes. A really, a really delicate stripe is fine, but a lot of these guys are wearing like one inch chalk stripes. You know, they look like just, just come off the trading floor in the city back in the sort of late 80s. Didn't work. It mm. didn't work. I hope you haven't noticed my Doc Martens this morning. <laughs> As a British Army officer who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, Tom Tugendhat knows one end of a rifle from the other. He was the Tory chairman of the Commons Foreign Affairs Committee until the election. He says Jeremy Corbyn has shot himself in the foot by trying to use the NATO summit to weaponise the NHS. But I started by putting it to Tom that it was once said of NATO it was set up to keep the Russians out, the Americans in and the Germans down. Is it still true, I asked him? Yes, the Russians are still a threat, uh, but the Americans are, as we saw yesterday, fully committed to NATO still, and the Germans are a very, very important partner. So I think it's evolved. And the real uh, mission of NATO, I think, is to keep the 30 or so democracies in uh, predominantly Western Europe and North America safe. And I think that's, uh, that's a really important role. But in, in, in the days of the Cold War, it was quite an easy concept to understand the Russians had their weapons pointed at us and we needed something to defend ourselves. I think people find it quite confusing in this sort of post-Soviet age to understand what NATO is doing. What is the threat now? Well, the threat's multiple and different. I mean, you know, with every age, it evolves. We know that the Russian threat is still real. We know that because of the Skripal attack. We know that because of the uh, fake news and the uh, 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 and the uh, attempts to subvert democracy that we've seen in various countries amongst NATO. And so we know that the Russian threat is still uh, genuine, and, and actually that still needs to be faced off. But actually NATO is doing more than that. But I think people also find it confusing because in some ways Trump seems 
closer to Vladimir Putin than Imam Macron, and they were exchanging insults yesterday. And at the same time, the Turks have just bought Russian weapons. It, it's very hard to see NATO in the same way as it was in the days of Thatcher and Reagan, for example. Well, look, let's not forget that uh, France and uh, the United States have been trading insults over NATO for years. Macron seems to have riled Trump by, by his remark that NATO was brain dead. Do you think that Trump took that as a remark aimed at him, him, him personally? Well, it's very, it's very hard to know quite where President Trump takes uh, his insults, but he does seem to take them freely. And so NATO, quite understandably, is struggling to keep up. It's not alone, by the way. The UN is struggling to keep up. The EU is struggling to keep up. You know, there's any number of different organizations that are struggling to keep up. But that doesn't mean that they're all irrelevant. You know, NATO still has a very important role in keeping, you know, democracies together. And I would like to see NATO extending its remit to include countries that are currently observers, like Australia, because the idea that NATO uh, shouldn't protect Australia, I, would, I find odd. I think it certainly should. An alien landing from Mars, reading, reading the British media today, m- might have concluded that, in fact, the NATO summit was about the NHS, not defence. NHS has become involved in this because the Labour Party in the election campaign is, is trying to get the idea going that Boris is going to sell off the NHS to Trump. Do you think they've had any, any success on that? Well, I hope they haven't, because it's complete rubbish. Um, and the truth is, the reason they're doing this is because Jeremy Corbyn has been calling for the disbandment of NATO for the best part of 50 years, uh, more than <laughs> almost as long as NATO's existed, uh, when the reality is uh, NATO is the underpinning of our defensive alliance. And because Jeremy Corbyn has frankly been more friendly with uh, Russia, East Germany and the old Soviet states than he ever was with America, you do know that until he became leader of the opposition, I don't think he'd ever been to the United States. You know, this is this is a serious oddity um, for, a, for a major politician uh, who claims uh, to be an international expert. I and mean, how you can be an international expert and not speak to one of the world's leading powers, I find very bizarre. Uh, but he doesn't. He only speaks to our enemies, as we know. Uh, and so what he's trying to do is distract and talk about the NHS, which is absolutely not for sale. I mean, Trump said yesterday that, that the, the Americans wouldn't want it if it was handed to them on a silver platter. I don't even know where that rumor started. We have absolutely nothing to do with it. And we wouldn't want to, if you handed it to us on a silver platter, we want nothing to do with it. But of course, it wasn't so long ago he stood on a, a rostrum with Theresa May and said in, in post-Brexit trade talks, everything will be on the table, including the NHS. Which are we to believe? Look, I think everything with the trade deal is on the table. When, you, when you're dealing in trade, everything's on the table. So NHS or anything else, or a lot, a lot more than that. But everything will be on the table, absolutely. There is no way that the British people are going to allow the NHS to be sold. You and I both know that. It's completely clear. And it's completely clear because we all know, uh, I don't care how rich or poor you are, we all know that it is the underpinning of our national life. My kids were born on the NHS. My kids are treated on the NHS. So am I. Uh, You know, everybody I know uses the NHS. Uh, Of course, we absolutely rely on it. And of course, we're all going to defend it. And so it's absolutely not for sale and never will be. And the British people would never vote for anybody who would sell it. Of course, it is possible that Jeremy Corbyn could win the election next week. And and that would mean that the next NATO summit in Britain could be hosted by Jeremy Corbyn. As a former lieutenant colonel of the British Army, Tom, how does that make you feel? Cold sweats is the frank answer. Just in the last few years, Russia has used a chemical weapon on British streets. I mean, that is a warlike act. They have downed uh, civilian aircraft over Ukraine, killing 200 or so people, totally innocent civilians, many of them Dutch. 
That is a warlike act. They have invaded uh, a country and occupied it and still hold it, as they do in Crimea, which is part of Ukraine. That is a warlike act. Consistently, Russia is behaving in an aggressive and warlike fashion. And Jeremy Corbyn tells us it's for us to reset the relationship. This is nuts. Well, Simon, I mean, he's absolutely true, um, Tom, when he talks about about Jeremy Corbyn and, and his you know, lack of love for our natural allies. You still can't get around this problem that Trump just being here creates a problem for Boris because every time you see him, you remember what he did say at one stage was that nothing was off, that everything was on the table in in trade deals. So he's on record as having said it. Now he's trying to, to um, you know, to... Go, you know, his, his silver platter. Kill it off, yeah. Kill it off. He's yeah. trying to kill it off. I think but, he has it, really. But it, it doesn't kill it off for, for Labour supporters because it plays into their fear and their narrative. It doesn't matter how many Tory MPs or Tory leaders say we would never sell off the NHS. Well, Staunch Labour supporters believe that they would. I, I I think the Conservatives would be just be happy that Donald Trump hasn't said he'd like he'd like the NHS on the silver platter because he's just <laughs> as like to come out with that. But but I I think the other amusing thing is is that, that Labour did try to make hay with this. They haven't really, and it was reduced to apparently last night at the reception at Buckingham Palace for NATO. Cor- Corbyn said he'd confront Donald Trump. And he went round the he went round the palace and he couldn't find him. I just wonder where he ended up. <laughs> Hilarious. Um, ha- having been in the palace on a number of occasions, <laughs> as one <laughs> does you perhaps, there are a lot of secret rooms. He could have got stuck in one of them. Have we seen him today? <laughs> the Tories would be quite happy, I think, that at the moment they they've got away with this, this quite 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 easily. And um, the curious thing I find is that in many ways, Corbyn is kind of closer to Russia than he is to America. You know, he likes all things Russian. He semi-defended them uh, over the Skripal thing. Yeah, and I And I think, I remember when um, in the Iraq war in, in 203, when George Bush got crossed with the French for not supporting them and he called them the cheese-eating surrender monkeys, I just wonder if Corbyn gets in number 10, Donald Trump will call him the, the cheddar-eating surrender monkey. <laughs> or weasel, wouldn't it be? <laughs> So, Simon, your favourite bit of the show, what's your topical tune today? My topical tune is by a great American R&B singer, Raphael Sadiq, and it's called A Hundred Yard Dash, which I thought kind of sums up the last rush to the line in the general election. And I think the words sum up the feelings of all those out campaigning. I tried to run, but I couldn't get too far. My heart is bumping because I'm running fast. I guess I'm going to need another plan. Feels like every day is just getting longer. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Don't forget, you'll be able to listen back to this and all our other Mail Plus radio podcasts at mailplus.co.uk. Join us next week for more political chat and election updates. But for now, that's all from me, Simon Walters. And from me, Amanda Platel. Goodbye. Goodbye.